The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. Today, we're going to be talking about running a successful hiring process and with an emphasis on sales roles. A lot of what we're going to be talking about is applicable to to all types of roles. And we have some great guests with us and I'm going to introduce myself and let the other guests introduce themselves as well. But you're going to learn today about lots of great ideas around successful hiring processes. I'm Lucas Price. I'm the, the founder and CEO of Yardstick and Yardstick is a sales talent selection tool. We help you solve the waste and loss from failed sales hires with tools for bringing structure and governance to the interview process and tracking the success of new hires against the hiring criteria. Thanks for having me, Lucas and, and team here. Colin Spector, VP of sales for Orem. Orem is an AI live conversation platform. It's the smartest way for a salesperson to make a call today. Phone system for sales team. Really excited to be here and I've hired dozens, possibly hundreds of reps in my career at this point. Excited to be here. Waylon. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, perfect. So I spent five years at Indeed.com helping companies hire great talent. I myself have been involved in hiring again, dozens, possibly hundred plus hires as well. Everything from BDRs to enterprise account executives and, and leaders of enterprise teams. My co-host is Chuck from Blueprint Expansion. Chuck, tell us a little bit about yourself and Blueprint. Thanks, Lucas. And thrilled to be on with uh, all, all these speakers here. So I'm Chuck Brotman. I'm the co-founder of Blueprint Expansion. We are a go-to-market roles recruiting firm. We work with early, mid, and mature B2B tech and, and subscriptions offer companies to help them make great sales, marketing, and customer success hires. And yeah, really looking forward to getting into this conversation. I've made many hires over the years. I've, I've previously been uh, a sales manager and leader and know how important this is. It's one of the reasons I've gotten into recruiting and, and appreciate having such great panelists here to drive this conversation. So we're going to start talking about the hiring process. Why is the interview process important? It, or maybe even tell us, is the interview process important? Uh, how does it rank in your mind? And is it something that can help us predict who's going to be successful in sales roles? I, I'm happy to jump in and then I'd love to hear from our other guests. I think it's super important. And what's interesting about this topic is, as we've seen this shift in the market over the last year from a growth at all costs, higher over higher your way to growth to one where efficient growth is the North Star of so many B2B organizations. To me, that just points to just the importance of getting every single hire right because you don't have the budget or capacity to over hire, which probably wasn't even a great strategy in, in the growth at all costs days. But if you want to make great hires, I think all of this is important, right? You, you need to understand what you're looking for. I know we're going to get into a lot of this, but certainly interviewing and Having a great assessment process, knowing what you want to look for and bring into businesses is critical. What do you guys think? I think there are a lot of people who, who believe that hiring is a coin flip and that the, the interview process isn't really that helpful. It's just part of the process of recruiting and 
we don't really know until people are in the seat whether they're going to be successful. Is that true, Colin? Is that true, Waylon? What's your experience with that? You can only reduce so much uncertainty in the interview process and, and through references and assessments. I would say as much as you can reduce the uncertainty up front, the better. Every job can be a little nuanced and a little different. And whether it's the work environment or the playbook and the persona they're selling to, right? It might be a different match. It doesn't always work out. I, I don't think it's quite a coin flip. I think you can really reduce your risk through a combination of all the, the elements in the survey here. And part of that is doing even like mock exercises, actually testing what the job, you know, showing them a, a day in the life of the job, show them sample calls from your sales calls or whatever role you're hiring for and get a sense from them how they could perform in a similar environment up front as much as possible. I agree with all that. I would just add that there is always an element of uncertainty, of course, and the, the goal of a good hiring process is just to reduce the uncertainty as much as possible. And that's really going to come down to how rigorous your hiring process is. And I think there, there's certainly companies that are probably batting 500 where percent of the people they're hiring are working out of 50% or not. And the goal is obviously to get that, that to 80 or 90%. I think one of the things that I see a lot is just interview processes that are too easy. And Lucas, I think you, you had a great post on this about going deep is that there's a lot of sort of surface level questioning going on in interviews. And if that's the level of questioning, it's very easy to prepare for a surface level interview, right? It's really the devil is in the details. And when you dig in with those second and third level questions, that's when you really separate be the great candidates from the not so great. And the way I think of it is if I were to play tennis against the hundredth ranked player in the world or the first ranked player in the world, it would probably look very much the same. I'd never hit a ball back. It's as the quality of competition increases, that's when you start to see it. And so you need to bake that into your process that it actually can be hard enough that, that only the great candidates make it through, assuming that you're in a position to be hiring great candidates. Great feedback. Some people seem to believe that there are ways to find successful sellers, but that the interview process is not the key part to it. That it might be assessments, it might be other pieces of that, all of which I believe are helpful. But the interview process itself, is that one of the key ways or are other things like more predictive and more helpful in terms of identifying who to hire as a seller? Happy to hit on this one. When there was like a crunch of the supply of talent on the bull run of the market just, what, a year ago or so, and we... We, we didn't want to pay crazy dollars for, for the talent. So we said, okay, we sat around the room, just like in the movie Moneyball. And we, we started to really think about what are the attributes that we really care about in our, our hires. And we really put a big emphasis on grit and competitive spirit and curiosity and, and people that really just strive to, for, to be excellent, the top of the leaderboard and growth mindset and and so we started to look at other industries outside the norm that we, we had historically been hiring from. And as an example of that, in our, specifically even in our SDR team, we hired for Michelin star sous chefs, right? Like people that obviously had gotten to the top of their game in the highest level, but were looking to make a transition in their career. And so they had the grit, they had the kind of skills internally inherent to them. And then it's a matter of teaching them some of the product knowledge and closing knowledge. And so I think a lot of it also just comes down to really getting clear on what you're willing to coach on, what you're not willing to coach on. And, and that can make it a lot easier too, and in terms of your hiring profile and what you have capacity for taking on as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how to build an ideal candidate profile and, and how similar are those profiles across 
roles in companies or how different are they? Are you starting over every time you build a profile within your company? And what are you, what, what are the elements of an ideal candidate profile that helps you identify the best hires? I think that there's going to be similarities. And I think Colin touched on this in the sense of it takes the same things to be great at anything. Like the process of becoming great at something is pretty consistent, right? Obviously you've got natural talents from five foot nine. I'm not going to be an NBA player, but the discipline it takes to become great, to push through challenges when things aren't going your way, that's consistent, whether you're a sous chef or a sales rep. And so there's a lot of things that are going to be common almost regardless of the role. And then there's going to be other things that are, are unique to you as a company. And you have to, it's not necessarily just about the candidate. It's also about you as the company. And it's what are you capable of coaching on? You might have a very technical solution and you've not really had success bringing in sellers who don't have a background. For example, let's say you're selling complex database solutions. You might be like, we've got a six month ramp and that's just not enough time in our experience for people to learn about the database. And so your ideal customer profile is going to be different. You're going to need someone who comes in with a bit of background because you don't have experience coaching people up in that area. And I think, so it's, it's really an interaction between the candidate. You have to identify where our current top performers look like and what are we actually able to coach on versus things that are, we just don't have experience doing. I think that's a big part of it. I, I tend to think of some of the elements that need to be in there are like, what's the specific experience or specific knowledge they need to have to succeed in this role? What are the skills that they need to have to succeed in this role? And, and, and what are the competencies and traits that they need to succeed in this role? One of the exercises I like to go through to help me think about those elements are what are the goals that need to be achieved by this hire? A year from now, two years from now, what's going to make me say this was a successful hire or make me say it wasn't a successful hire? And that usually helps me fill out those other elements. How do you think about building this? You alluded to this, Lucas, right? It's you have specific attributes and elements that make great salespeople or customer success people or sales development people. And what might vary, you have your core kind of framework that you can bring no matter where you go. But what might vary is the persona or the segment or the playbook. And so on that, a couple of quick examples might be if you're in a high velocity sales environment versus an enterprise sales environment, an enterprise sales environment, you might need to add a couple other attributes such as the patience in enterprise. Whereas if you're in a high velocity sales environment, an enterprise rep might really struggle versus a high velocity rep might lose patience on enterprise deals and those quick wins, they don't, they lose their motivation. And, and even though they're a great seller and they have all the grit and drive and competitive spirit and curiosity and coachability and everything else you look for normally, but just if they're lacking one other attribute that is necessary for an enterprise, we're talking nine to 12 month sales cycle, and they're used to the in-quarter closes, then you have sometimes a challenge there if they're not able to overcome or, or gather that competency. Are things like grit or history of achievement, curiosity, are there traits like that you would say put in every sales role or nearly every sales role? Or do you think that there are it's very specific to the sales role that there's not any of those competencies that kind of transcend all of them. I think the ones you listed actually do. Those are ones that transcend every role, curiosity, grit, hard work, aptitude that applies everywhere. It applies more as you go up, up market. If you, you need to be able to sound like the people that you sell to. So if you're selling larger solutions at every level, I think reps with high aptitude who put the work in, they tend to perform reps that don't have it. They learn more quickly. A lot of us work at startups, things are constantly changing. So that level of adaptability, I think applies at almost 
at all these companies. If you're in a huge company, maybe not as much, but certainly at startups and the types of companies we, most of us work at, that's super critical. So a lot of this stuff is consistent across for sure. I think we've covered a lot of really vital things in terms of soft skills, critical maybe versus secondary competencies. Waylon, your kind of discussion about if you're like maybe an early stage company with a highly technical spell, the importance of finding people that can be more self-sufficient and learn the technicalities faster. I'm curious, in, in terms of building candidate profiles in the market today, this is not the market of 2021. There, there is a little bit more talent on the market relative to demand. Companies are not hiring as fast. If there are more candidates out there today, should companies be like tightening their candidate profiles and how much should they be tightening them? Because I think there, there's still the, the consideration that a lot of things good organizations can train for and enable. If you find people that have the right soft skills and dispositions. So how do you think about that in the market today? And how do you make sure that you're not looking for that, that unicorn? It definitely matters, right? In 2021, you couldn't afford a false negative. You couldn't afford to have a great candidate in your pipeline that wants to work for you and not be able to identify them. You had to get all of them because there just weren't enough out there. Now you can afford some false negatives. You can be more risk averse and say, we're going to stick a little bit more tightly to what we think is required to be successful here. If you're growing a business and you need to hire some bodies, you should just hire anyone. You shouldn't just fill up. They're, they're generally not even going to contribute to revenue. They're going to take leads away from other sales reps who are probably better. But if you need to scale, you do need to do some hiring. You're probably going to have to loosen up that criteria a little bit. I was in a situation when I worked at Indeed where we were hiring massive numbers of salespeople. We were already a billion plus in revenue, but growing like 50 year, in some cases, 100% year over year. You're not going to go 90% if you have to hire 10 reps a month in your hit rate. But if you're only hiring one or two a month, you can afford to be a little bit more choosy. Obviously, yeah. you have to stay away from looking for candidates that don't exist or looking for candidates that if they do exist, you really have no business hiring. There's no reason why they should want to work for you because either your comp package isn't good enough, the company's not doing well enough, but it certainly should factor in. I tend to think that companies or a lot of people over-index on the specific experience that they want and under-index on the traits that really matter. Now, there are times when you mentioned a scenario earlier, whaling around having certain technical knowledge with a database. And, and I think it is important. Enterprise sales, you probably don't want to put someone who's great, but never had great traits, but never had a sales role into enterprise sales. There's a career progression to get there. I, I think it's helpful to think about it as like, where can we loosen up the specific experience that we need? And where can we tighten up what we're looking for in terms of competencies and traits? I think that's bang on. Skills and like aptitude characteristics are not easily changed. Knowledge right. is pretty easily changed, especially if someone's smart. I would almost always rather go for aptitude over knowledge because once they catch up to that person in knowledge, the person with the higher aptitude, they're going to keep going. And yeah. so if you want to hire like real stars, the real stars always have really high aptitude and characteristics 100%, I think are the most important. Colin, I'm taking us back a little bit here, but um, one of the things I wanted to hear from you on was, are there certain traits that you almost always look for in a sales role? We've hit on a, a number of them here. And just to repeat some of the top ones that consistently we look for at, at Orem and namely at, at my prior roles. Grit, I would say is top. Coachability, like how coachable are they? In, and within that self-aware, curiosity, intelligence, competitiveness, integrity, reliability, Adaptability, which was mentioned by Waylon, especially in a startup where most of my career has been in early stage, hyper growth startups and people that don't have that adaptability as a core attribute can struggle when the playbook changes, when the territory changes, when things change very 
quickly, sometimes even quarter over quarter. Attitude is key for us. We're always looking for really positive folks. Emotional intelligence. So we know that emotional intelligence is something that you can train on, but at the same time, it comes down to at that time, point in time, are you willing to coach on that or do you want somebody coming with great emotional intelligence? And then within attitude, I, I also want to mention, as I said before, growth mindset. Is this someone that has a growth mindset? They view sales as a endless mastery of a profession, right? And they're always striving to sharpen their steel and have that growth mentality and mindset that they don't know at all. And that relates to their coachability. And so we're, we're really looking for, as it comes down to hungry, smart, driven people that really want to learn and grow and are open-minded to grow with us. A lot of times I'll talk to sales leaders and they'll say, oh yeah, that the hiring process is important. Talk to my recruiting team about that. What's your reaction to that type of response as the sales leader? Who should own it? I, the sales leader should own it, right? It's their playbook and they should own it in partnership with their other constituents on the team. And that could be if you have a an in-house talent management team or your other managers, your other hiring managers. But at the end of the day, it should, be, it should come down to the revenue leader, the sales leader to really own it. And then you should empower your managers to make their own team hiring decisions. You're, you're going to go build your team, right? Here's our process of how we scale and productize sales here at the company. And now we're going to make this thing big. And we know we're hiring people that are value aligned and have the similar, the same attributes, not just similar, the same attributes that we say, we know this is the recipe for success in a salesperson here. Now we're empowering you as a manager to go make decisions based on this criteria and this process. And that way, we, when you have a consistent process, then you can measure and then you can make changes. When you go wild west is when it's hard to go back and look back and say, what attribute did we miss on? That lends to like why having something like Yardstick is, is so critical, right? It's one thing just to have a templated, you know, performance interview or, or interview process and performance management process, but to actually ensure that folks are following a, a rigorous process, it allows you to make experiments and changes and, and go back and do postmortem, whether good or bad as well. So the, the sales leader owns making sure the process is right and consistent across the company. And the frontline manager owns the final decision with the inputs of someone who's gone through the full process. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, you, you nailed it. It's, it's really the revenue leader's job to, to build the playbook and frameworks. And then you should empower your managers to make decisions within those frameworks and say, hey, look, if they're hitting a score on all these marks at this threshold, then you're good. Your uncertainty is reduced. But at the end of the day, you're the D and you're the decision. You decide who you want on your team. You're the sponsor of that person in their career here. So I agree with most of that. At the end of the day, who's on your team is likely to have the biggest impact on your success in the role as a revenue leader. You're not going to, you're not going to hire a bunch of C players and all of a sudden have a dream team because you're a great coach. It doesn't work that way. If you hire a bunch of A players and you mostly just stay out of the way, you'll probably be fine actually. So I think it's super important who's on the team. So you certainly don't want to be outsourcing that to your talent development team and if you're getting the vast majority of your candidates through your talent partners, that's probably not a good thing. You need to be the type of sales leader that people want to work for. And a lot of your recruitment should come through your network of either people who worked for you before or people who are friends with people who've worked for you before and can come in knowing what it's like to work for you for real because they've either done it before or they have a close friend who can tell them what it's really. That should be a significant source of your pipeline always for sure. Where I disagree a little bit is where I've seen things go sideways for some organizations is 
junior managers doing hiring and making their own decisions, even within a framework. And if you just think about it, like when you're selling deals, you can afford to like, especially if you're in like SMB or mid-market, you can afford to not close some winnable deals. You just go find the next deal. If you miss on a hire, the cost to get out of that bad decision is a lot bigger and it has material impact to the person who was hired. It could be a great sales rep. Let's use the database example. Amazing sales rep. They come in, they don't have the required uh, knowledge. You can't teach them fast enough for them to hit the ramp effectively. And now you've really crushed someone's confidence who's actually a great seller. And now they've got to go get a new job. They've got to explain a hole in their resume. There's so much more at stake than there is with just like selling deals and that it's important for the person who ultimately runs the organization to have final say. Now, you don't want to hire someone and put them on someone's team who doesn't want them for sure. So I would never say, yes, we're hiring this person. They're going to be on your team because you want people to feel ownership for their team for sure. But I would certainly reserve the right in all cases to veto and say, let's just keep looking. And it's not something that I would do often, but it's certainly something that I think is important because when the senior leaders take themselves out of the equation, I think that you just tend to have more misses because hiring is not selling deals where you might close 20 a year or 30 a year. You might only make four hires a year. You're not learning as quickly as you are with like a selling motion, for example. I wonder if this next topic is the way to find agreement on this issue where there's some overlap, but it's not exactly the same because the four of us are four, four people who have fought a lot about how to interview the right way. We've practiced it or we've done, been in there doing a lot of interviews. Is that good enough that on your team, you're really good at interviewing or is it important that it's an individual skill that you're really skilled at? Or is it, it important to help everyone on your team but become good at interviewing? You nailed it. It's not that when I say empowering my, my managers to go and make their decisions, that they're doing it in a vacuum, right? They are getting inputs. I can make recommendations. I, maybe I could ultimately veto right on the VP at the end of the day, but I want to empower them, put their name on that person and say, that's the one I want on my team. Now they should absolutely be getting inputs. They don't interview people in a vacuum. So going back to what I'm saying there, part of a process is they're, they're, they have to have met with at least two other managers and myself, sometimes our CEO, right? Depending on how big the company is in our stage, the CEO is still mostly meeting with many of our candidates. And so based upon the scores and the inputs from each party, the manager's empowered to make the final decision of this is my person. Right. But if they have a bunch of low scores from the other you know, input, the, frame, the, the the book says you probably should not decide to hire that person. It would be rare. I don't think it's ever really happened that someone has gone and hired, even though other people said no. Waylon, what, how do you think about up, up leveling the, the interviewing skill of, your, of the rest of the team? You should have a process and you should be training people on the process. And, and you got to teach it just the same way you teach selling skills. Right. We talked a little bit earlier about deep diving and stuff. And what I see, for example, in a lot of first time hiring managers is asking people questions like, what do you, what do you think is important to being a successful account executive? And then someone will say something like preparation, preparation is number one. And you say, okay, great. This, and the, the entry-level hiring manager, the early hiring manager might think, okay, this person's great at preparation. And they don't ask that second or third level question. It might be something as simple as just, okay, great. Tell me what you did to prepare for this interview. And so teaching them to dig deeper, to separate that sort of surface level answer. So I think it's really important to do that. And also it's just important because you need to protect your time as well. In an ideal world, this is to Colin's point, you would like it to be the case that if one of your hiring managers puts someone in front of you that they think, I want to hire this person, that you're probably going to go with that person because they're running a good process and you've taught them how to do that. You don't want them to be sending you 10 candidates 
when they could be sending you two or three and, and that is educating them on, on what the process looks like, what good looks like, what it takes to be successful here. In a way, discussions around who owns the process and who has veto rights and when, these are all important things to work through and, and you do need to have a, a, a process. But I think to your question, more important or, or just fundamentally important to getting all of this right is making sure that you've orchestrated this whole process and what anybody involved in assessing talent is actually doing. And that's where I see so many, and actually a lot of this I see as a recruiter, our clients don't always know what executives or panelists are assessing for, what's actually taking place in a, that values fit conversation. And if you don't know that, and then you've got people there who are vetoing or raising concerns and you haven't tied that back to overall, like your ideal candidate profile and your needs and the outcomes you need this person to drive, it's, it's not the, the root cause is what you need to get to, which is how is their assessment contributing to us finding the best person for this role versus am I accommodating or not accommodating people who feel like I shouldn't make this hire because you don't know what they're assessing for. That feedback is not very useful. One last thing that I would add is just it's becoming more common to record interviews. And I think it's really valuable to watch the interviews. So even if I'm going to do a final round for somebody, I'll watch typically the interviews and Use it the same way you'd use call recording for coaching on sales calls and watch it and do feedback in terms of sometimes maybe we're just having a nice conversation and we end up just hiring, wanting to hire someone who we like and we, we have a good rapport with. And so if you're not watching any of the interviews, it becomes very difficult to know if we are sticking to the plan and if we are executing the interviews in the right way. That's a great call out. We talk about interviewing is a two-way street. It's a part of that. If you're recording these is look, you're looking at both sides of that equation on the recruiting side. And I run now probably over a thousand screens and it's, I, I wouldn't say I was perfect early in my career as a recruiter, but something like I take the discipline so seriously, how I go, I'm prepared for every single screen I run. And it's, it's not because I'm like just protecting my employer's brand. That's part of it. But Hey, if I'm going to do a good assessment, like I have to be on my A game. I have to be prepared. I have to have a purpose, agenda, outcome. And I think that applies all the way through the process. What are the important aspects to the hiring process? And I wrote a few down here to get us kicked off. And we've talked about some of these things already, but it's organized and efficient. It's structured where every interviewer knows what they're supposed to be covering in the interview. It includes the generic name is work samples, but a lot of times in sales, a lot of times that could be a a, a um, mock discovery call or a mock cold call or something like that. It includes scorecards. It includes debriefing about the candidate, reference checks, and then finally the offering, the negotiation and closing the candidate. So those are some of the elements that go into the process. Love to hear from any of you about what of those elements are like important, like ways to do them successfully. And then if there's other elements that we're missing from there that we should be talking about as well. I'll just give like a brief story. So I was at a dinner with uh, um, a very senior sales leader and actually he's been CEO uh, of, of several companies as well. His name is Butch, Butch Langwa. And I was talking to him about hiring and he told me that uh, in the previous year, he'd probably seen something like a hundred people who'd worked for him post new job alerts on LinkedIn. And he's like, guess how many uh, reference calls I got? It's, I don't know, 10, 15. The answer was zero. I think reference checks are something that's generally not happening. Sometimes it's happening and even when it's happening, it's not happening, right? I think you could get the lowest performer who's difficult to deal with and they can probably find you three people they've worked with who are willing to say nice things about them. And so if our reference, so when I hear people say something like reference checks are, they're meaningless, it's just because people aren't doing them correctly. So I'm a big fan of, it's a hiring methodology called who the A method for hiring. It's a form of top grading. 
And one of the series of questions that you ask is who, who did you report to directly? And you ask this for every role and you say, what would they say was your superpower? And what would they say you needed to work on at that time? And then I'm going to tell people at the end of that interview, look, I think it's super important to do reference checks. I think you should do reference checks on me. You should talk to people on my existing team. You should reach out to places where I worked previously to understand if I'm the right fit for you. I'm going to want to do the same. If you don't want me to contact the third 50% of the people you've worked for, then there's probably a 30 to 50% chance that I'm not going to feel good about this hire in the future. And that's too much of a risk for me. Now, understanding that some people will have people grow, they adapt. So the fact that somebody has a bad reference by no means a bad, a killer of, of an opportunity for me. But when you do those calls, people who've consistently been great, they'll follow up from that conversation with an email with contact details of everyone they've ever worked for. And you got to do the reference checks anyways. But at that point, you know, this person's probably really sharp. The fact that they came back and everyone they've worked for would be happy to speak on their behalf. But in those conversations, it's really critical that you're asking the right questions. And one of the beauties of that approach is when you say, what would they say you needed to work on? You can raise that in the reference check, right? So I've had an experience or I've had experience where I say things like, John told me you might say that he needed to be more organized. And the person says, wow, that was a really honest answer from John. And they'll be like, but here's why I don't think that's entirely fair. And you really get the good and the bad and you get a more holistic picture. And when you do it that way, in my experience, it's been highly predictive. And when I see hires that have not worked out and not worked out spectacularly, it's almost always the case that either reference checks weren't done at all or were done very poorly. That's a lot of great information on reference checks. Colin, I've heard some great things from you in our previous conversations around how you do like sales role plays. Can you share a little bit about how you make those role plays successful at Orem? We share a, a sample discovery call, like an actual live discovery call that, that we've gotten permission to share from the customer. And the, the candidate, they get, they get to see an example of what we have defined as what good looks like. We said, hey, this is what a good discovery call looks like here or for this specific segment, the specific product suite that we're selling. Um, take a look at this. We also share sample discovery questions so they don't need to you know, come up with them. And for us, we don't expect you to be a product expert on our, our solution, right? It's, the goal of the exercise isn't, hey, you need to come here and be an Aura expert. We want to just see how you ask questions, how you guide and lead a discovery call. And ideally, you've armed yourself with enough insight about Aura based upon what we've shared. We also pair you up with an account executive where you can go and ask questions and, and further enable you for the meeting. So there, there is some upfront work. They, they do have skin in the game going into the, the mock call. They generally prepare a deck or in some cases, they'll, they'll actually try to demo the product. We have a free trial. And so some of the best candidates have actually gone and they'll, they'll sign up for the trial and actually do a mock demonstration within the discovery. And, and so we really, but, but again, we, we rank it not on product expertise and stuff we could teach you. It's much more around how do you think about discovery? What are you coming to us foundationally with? What foundation of skills do you already have from a discovery perspective? And then we can see, okay, what do we need to build on? What do we need to teach them? Ideal, like the ideal candidates, it's simply, we're just teaching you our market, our personas, our product and technology. And you're coming in with great foundational question asking skills and communication skills and driving urgency and next steps and uncovering pain and everything that's associated with great discovery. What I'm hearing that I love is like rigor and transparency. So in terms of how Colin runs the role play, you're clear and specific on what you want to assess, how they think, how they run disco. It's not about product expertise. 
like the risk in the game, time to execute. In terms of Whalen, you ask about their experiences and, and how reference talk about them, then you ask for those references. So many companies where they get hiring wrong is they think it's about, they have to play games. They have to throw people off kilter. There have to be surprises. They can't share what's being assessed. And I think what you're both in different ways showing here is how you can have a rigorous process to, to find the best and mitigate risk and also be transparent, which also I think as a byproduct, improves your employer brand, leaves a great impression, even on those that you ultimately decide to pass on. Yeah, that's a great job tying it together. One of the default behaviors for someone who's interviewing who hasn't been trained on it or giving it, given instructions is that they're going to end up with, I liked that person, they seemed good. And that is a way that introduces cognitive bias into the process. And I think one of the key ways to take cognitive bias out of the process is to make each interviewer think about the individual factors. Where were they on, you know, you had questions where you were supposed to be evaluating their history of achievement, their grit, their emotional intelligence, and break down individual scores on each of that to go one layer deeper beyond I just like them or to go many layers deeper beyond I just like them. And I think that's why scorecards are really important is that begin the process of removing that cognitive bias and getting into the traits. That's just scratching the surface on scorecards. With that, I'll throw it out to anyone else who has additional comments about how, how to build scorecards and why scorecards are important. I, like, I, I just agree with that, Lucas, totally. And yeah, you could have recency bias or just some sort of bias of likability. Some people are just good interviewers. And on the surface, gosh, I really like that person, but you need to be able to go back and look at how they answered the specific questions that you've aligned with the rest of your team on as the objective criteria with which you're going to make these decisions. And I think like where you add tremendous risk to your number and the business, and, and as Waylon had called out before, the cost on the business is if you make those kind of gut, just shoot from the hip kind of reactions and don't follow a process or don't even build a process to begin with. If you just shoot from it all the time, like that's where I think some companies really spend a lot of money and burn cash and, and make huge errors. Uh, I think Waylon has a point of view on this that I'm going to tee up a little bit as well. One of the things that I tell people who are asking me about this is like that final decision, the scores that come out of the score are not the decision, right? They're a data point that helps you make the decision. Because sometimes there is something in your gut around, hey, these scores look good, but, but and, and sometimes your, your gut is right and you're not quite sure why. And so the best hiring decisions ultimately are human decisions. And we want to use a process to take our cognitive biases out of those decisions. But ultimately, the decision is a score from the scorecard. It might be other assessments that you take. It might be the resume. And all of that stuff has to be triangulated into making the decision. And so building a process that gives us a score enhances the quality of those decisions significantly, but you don't want that to be just the decision, just the scores that kick out of it, that those are inputs into the decision. I know, Waylon, you've made some comments along these lines. I think that's totally accurate. And I think probably the reason that less people use scorecards than should is because sometimes you're definitely not going to just hire who got the best score. And part of that is that people can be outsized. They could be two, three X better than other people at a couple of particular areas that are relevant and not super high in other areas and be really successful. And that might be the person you want to hire. And if you use this balanced scorecard approach and feel like your decision is going to be dictated by that, there's a good chance you just stop using scorecards. I think those are, are solid points. I do think what's important is that if you've got the scorecards, going back to that scenario, you, you painted at the outset column of someone who just says this person's good. And going back to the discussion of ownership and accountability, if this is your process 
and you've got participants who are doing that, even at a senior level, they can't continue to be a part of the process. Much if you've got a rep who's top performing and, and just refuses to put basic details in CRM, good leaders know ultimately if they're not you know, following process there, like the results don't matter. They're not helping us scale and they're not being solid citizens and territories get constrained or changed or they get managed out of the business. Like hiring has to be similar. There has to be whatever your process is. Like you have to make sure that people are following it. They have issues with it. They feel like, hey, these the scorecard's wrong or this is constraining or my guess is otherwise open up that dialogue, do postmortems. But like too many times I see companies that just tolerate renegades because they're really busy. I want them to talk to this person. Like one week link like that can like crater your whole process. What happens if I'm thrown into an interview process without any guidance? I would reach out immediately to whoever the hiring manager is to understand what I'm evaluating for. We just think about in the scorecard question or uh, context, for example, which of these elements am I supposed to be evaluating for? Probably tough to evaluate in a 30 minute or 45 minute conversation, someone on eight different dimensions. What should I be focused on? If they're not giving you that guidance, you're not putting you in a position to be successful. I would definitely ask the follow-up. If I didn't get that, I would probably test for some of those things that Colin talked about is what are those traits that are going to be required regardless of the role, grit, determination, coachability, curiosity. I would test for the things that I know are likely to be applicable regardless. If you're the hiring manager, you should be onboarded and, and trained on exactly what Waylon was alluding to, just double clicking there. If you're unsure on how you should focus the hiring process, then expectation setting there seems to misalign. Like, was it your responsibility to go build the, the process or were you kind of thrown in middle of, they had a pipeline of candidates? Were those candidates chosen based upon like the VP's criteria and you're just providing input on, I, I think, yeah, they, they need to ask them, ask them to pull back with you, go through the process, understand why the criteria is what it is, like the, the, the why behind it. I think that will help you be a better interviewer and have context as well. So you're not just shooting from the hip and, and going into something blind there. Context in any process is important for most people to, to really grasp like why it's important to the business and to them, what it means for everyone. I totally agree with both your answers. I think if I put myself in their shoes and I really had no information, I'm assuming I at least know the role and I'm going to be interviewing candidates for the role. And I'd be, and I was told just go interview. What I would do is I would think about what are one or few, one or two traits that are going to be really important for this role. And then I would try to develop probably behavioral based questions about those traits. So behavioral based question is tell me about a specific time that you faced this certain type of challenge that's related to the trade. And then I would ask every candidate the same questions. And yeah. so that I, I'm scoring my candidates in a consistent way. So I, this is not a good way to run a process, but if I were put into a process that I had no control over, except, and I only have control over my little slice of it, and I couldn't, for whatever reason, go and talk to the manager about it. And this is a little bit far-fetched that I couldn't, but if I couldn't, that's what I would do is I would say, all right, what's one or two traits that I think are going to be really important? Come up with a set of questions, behavioral-based questions, not a lot of questions. Each question I want to go very deep on. So only three or four questions during the interview, but be prepared to ask lots of follow-up questions about each one and ask every candidate the same questions and then come up with a score on those traits afterwards. That's how I would handle the situation. As a hiring manager, how would you handle a CEO who's involved in the interview process and his yes or no is the final say? It can be tough. I've certainly been in that situation, whether or not it's the CEO or just whoever you're reporting to, you need to figure out what it is that they want to see. And you might have a difference of opinion in terms of what's important. And so what I would do is try to get really clear on what they want. And part of that is you'll probably set some candidates through 
that they like and some that they don't like. And so when I was in a situation like this, what I wanted to do was earn the trust that I could start making the decisions on my own. So really just like tightening up and only putting people through that you think are going to make it through their process, right? So they might think that a few things are valuable that you don't really think so. You got to test for those and don't put people forward unless they meet that criteria. It's probably going to make your life a little bit more difficult. You're going to have to interview more candidates, right? Because you're not just looking for people who meet your criteria, but they also, they're in that Venn diagram where they overlap with what you're looking for and what the CEO is looking for. Find those people, be restrictive in terms of who you put through and earn the trust potentially or hopefully to start making those decisions on your own because you've proven um, that you can, you put forward great candidates. At some point, the CEO is likely going to be like, if everybody sent through is yes for me, then I'm just going to get, take my time back. I don't need to be doing this anymore. I, I think it also depends like this, the size of the company, like in the early, yeah. in the earlier days of your sub, I don't know, a few hundred employees, the CEO, especially on revenue generating roles where every new dollar and every dollar you keep and expand is so important. You should be empowering and, and entrusting your revenue leaders. Yes, but each person makes an impact on the culture. You're not yet at scale to where that doesn't have a, a big impact, right? And so for that reason, I think at minimum for the cultural alignment, value alignment, and kind of vision too, right? To hear the CEO vision is exciting. So yeah, to, to Waylon's point, put your kind of top finalists in front of the CEO if they really want to be a part of the process, they don't always, right? But when they do, I think it's actually great because if you're putting a top finalist that you're trying to help sell the role on, what better way to do that than through the CEO who's going to get them more excited about the vision and gosh, like the CEO is willing to invest their generous time with me on this call and they're sharing their philosophy. I'm even more excited about this opportunity. So another thing to think that's important, whether it's an earlier mid-stage company or large for that matter, if you have that scenario is making sure that your CEO is aware of the process that you've built and how you're assessing for skills and competencies. It's a way for you to open up conversation. If they're insistent on having final conversation, obviously you have to accommodate that, but how can you make them aware of what's been assessed and where you are so that that final step, they're not going back and, and reassessing. You, in other words, position them to add value on, on top of what you've already done and also to like make them aware of like the thoughtfulness and structure you put in place. And then the last thing I was gonna say on, on top of that too is, make sure that you're communicating with your candidates, like the why behind this too, that this is an opportunity for you, particularly if it's late stage, this is a finalist, you feel like this is your candidate. You know, don't just throw them to the executive, make sure they understand, hey, here's where this fits in our process. And here's your opportunity to ask final questions too, because in many cases, you can make this a selling point to that candidate, particularly if it's a competitive situation, like, hey, here's your chance to talk with their executive leadership, come prepare with good questions, right? And, and the best candidates should like embrace that opportunity versus being off put by it. Those are great points, Colin. The point that, hey, this is incredible that the CEO is willing to help with this and they have the vision for the company and stuff like that. And then it can, like Chuck said, it really help in the recruiting as well. But you have to think about, okay, how do I make the CEO a value add to this? And I think the way I would do it is I would, tying back to the beginning of our meeting, is I would take the ideal candidate profile and perhaps the scorecard to the CEO at the beginning of the process before candidates are coming in and say, this is what I think we're looking for. Do you agree or disagree? And I saw Chris Voss speak yesterday. So to the extent that the CEO disagreed, I would try to dig in and understand. I would ask mirroring questions and I would label the things that he said to get the CEO to tell me more, to figure out how we can come to an agreement on what the right characteristics are that we should be looking for. And, and there's a good chance that the CEO will really enhance the profile by having that conversation with them. So that's how I'd handle it. And we're at time here. And I really want to thank everyone for participating today. I think it was a great conversation. And 
Thanks again and look forward to, to chat with you guys more in the future. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.